0: Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most horrific, the most mind-boggling, eye-popping homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are examined, and they are profiled. Now, according to LegalDictionary.com, the word parasite is defined as the murder of a close relative and this relative it could be like your siblings like a brother or sister or the victim could be like your aunt or uncle your cousin or any other close relative uh you would think that killing your parents like that would automatically warrant a life sentence but in the state of maryland apparently it does not and mostly all of the murderers that I have profiled for this season have either already served their time and been released, and they have moved on and have, you know, rebuilt their lives or whatever. Um, and, you know, for those listeners who are truly familiar with me and my story, to answer that question, um, no, I will not be profiling or discussing the murder of my father, even though it was like a parasite case, because that case has already been profiled for T V one several times and that's like pretty much old news now. You can already check all that out on my payback episode, which was on T V one, or my Justice by Any Means episode, which was on uh T V one. Or you can click on the episode entitled, Why I Do What I Do, which is featured on this um, podcast. But for this season, season 8, the focus or topic of discussion will be killers who, for whatever reason, have murdered their parents, like, you know, their mother or their father, or their grandparents, or a caregiver, somebody that was responsible for you know, nurturing them for taking care of them. Basically, um, any type of these type of killings have been profiled for this particular season. So the killer for this season, season 8, that I'm going to profile for this particular episode um, is 16-year-old... Michael Eugene Fisher and like I have done in every single episode that has been featured on this podcast, a portion will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that does need some type of special attention, it needs to be reopened, it needs to be talked about or something because basically not a lot if anything is being done about it anymore And the unsolved murder that I'm going to profile for this episode is the murder of 29-year-old Linda May Lester. Now, this next case right here, many, many of y'all sent me messages on my website asking me to profile this one. And I'm not going to lie. I I didn't really remember that at first, but it was only because I lived in Baltimore City at the time when this happened, many, many, which is many, many, many miles away um, from Talbot County, which is where, you know, this happened. And it's nowhere near Baltimore, you know, in my opinion. So, but then um, when I did the research and I saw the picture and everything, I was like, oh yeah, yeah. I do remember this. I do remember this one clearly, and I definitely had to include um this particular killer in with you know the Parasite killing uh, season. I was I was kind of young. I remember when this happened, but how can you not be mesmerized, like or at the the complete? How can you not be in the matrix, even when you think about this case? I remember when this happened i little i was a student at uh a place called ptc career institute in baltimore <laughs> i was learning how to be a security guard seriously i mean like who does that <laughs> i swear the stuff that people i used to spend my money on for real like tax money and everything to learn how to be a security guard and they shouldn't even have been allowed to even teach the stuff that I was learning. which was basically how to sit at a desk. But anyway, y'all remember PTC Career Institute? People that's from Baltimore? I mean, y'all remember PTC Career Institute? And the little scamming-ass trade schools like, you know, Ron Thomas, Cosmetology, and all that other stuff? Anyway, I don't know how we got off topic, but when this happened, I was learning how to be a security guard. And, yeah, I do remember that I was still, um, I was still into true crime i was still trying to pursue some type of career that would put me um in a direct line with researching why criminals and murderers in particular do what they do and i was completely shocked when i heard about this one i remember but guess what y'all don't hate me for this hate the messenger and the state of maryland hate them but Basically, um y'all might not see it, but after I finish, you're going to understand why. But I actually see him, I see this killer possibly being released one day. Don't hate me. I mean, hate the message. I, I really see him being, I I really see him being released one day, especially since he got this whole mental illness basis behind his whole defense and he's still apparently insisting on, on to that theory. Plus, he was a minor at the time of this this homicide. So that's going to have a lot to do with it. But anyway, let's just get right into it. Michael's case starts off like this. Okay, Talbot County is like the heart of the Eastern Shore. The town of Easton in particular. Easton is not necessarily... Like immune to homicides. It's not like, oh, we never get, they never get homicides there. But this particular homicide put Easton on the map for a minute after this one. Because this one, you have like a seemingly just normal teenager, normal kid. Like no signs at all. 16 year old Michael Eugene Fisher. He grew up in this, that small town community area where everybody knew each other in Easton. Michael was a junior at Easton High School. Michael was the editor of the school uh, newspaper. Uh, I mean, a school magazine called uh, Voices. And he worked at the local Pizza Hut after school. Michael liked to play chess. Um, he liked to play video games, especially, you know, the type of violent video games Um, And back in the day, there was this video game called uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I'm not even sure if that's even still out, but or even if that would even be considered violent versus how video games are now. I'm not a video game person per se, but either way, I do remember um, it was other crimes where they were using that theory. Oh, they were playing Dungeons and Dragons. So apparently that must have been a violent video game. But anyway, this was a game that Michael liked like playing. And he also liked playing a role-playing card game called Magic. Um, Michael was also being raised by a good family, too. Um, Michael's mother, who was a uh, 41-year-old Susan Ray Fisher, she was a teacher at Easton High School, where which is the same school that um, Michael went to. And she taught biology and science. Michael's biological father, according to articles in the Baltimore Sun. His uh, biological father reportedly had schizophrenia, and he was just basically stashed away somewhere in a mental hospital in Pennsylvania. Michael's um, father's mental illness, it kind of killed the marriage with Michael's mother, and the couple eventually divorced because of him having this schizophrenia. Michael's mother moved on, and she met uh, a 27-year-old, Christopher Douglas Fisher, who was also a popular teacher at White Marsh Elementary School, where he taught fourth graders. Christopher and Susan met in 1990, and despite the age difference, two years later after meeting, they got married. Christopher adopted Michael and his younger two brothers. And the family lived in a nice home in the 300 block of North Washington Street in Easton. The family was close. They was active in their community. They was active in their church. Uh, The family went on skiing trips. They took vacations. Picture perfect. All of Michael's friends and classmates said that Michael was pretty much quiet. He had no issues with like zapping out, no anger issues or nothing like that. He had no issues with fights or violence, no history of beating on people, of, you know, cursing. Other than Michael's grades slipping a little bit, there was absolutely no outward signs, no warning signals, no signs whatsoever of the nightmare that was about to unfold in this small, quiet town of Easton during the early morning hours on February 19, 1996 around 5:24 a.m. Talbot County 911 dispatchers got a call. The caller on the other end reported that he was having a problem with his parents and that he needed the police. When the police showed up at the house, they quickly discovered that this was more than somebody just having a problem with his parents. When the police showed up, they found Michael's mother and stepfather dead in their bed on the second floor. They both had been beaten with a hammer, which had fractured their skulls. They also had been stabbed at least 12 times each, all throughout their body. Obviously murdered, As if the murder of these two teachers wasn't shocking enough, as the police searched the house, they also found the body of Michael's younger brother, 14-year-old David Christopher Fisher, who was found in his bedroom on the first floor of the house with a large hole in his throat. Apparently, Michael had tried or cut his throat Michael's 12-year-old brother was also found in the home, but he wasn't hurt at all. With three dead bodies in the home and all victims of obvious homicides, Michael at first told the detectives that somebody had broken into their home and they just randomly started attacking and killing his family. But later, after the questions continued... Six hours after Michael made the 911 call, he eventually confessed to his parents and his younger brother. I mean, he basically confessed to killing his parents and his younger brother. Michael told the detectives that night that before the Grizzly Sands, like the night before, that he had set his alarm and everything to go off at four o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, So he could get up and play computer games on his computer, which is like, first off, who does that? That's really into that shit deep. But anyway, but instead of playing video computer games, like what he said he planned to do out of seemingly nowhere and for absolutely no reason at all, Michael decided to wipe out his family instead Michael calmly confessed to the detectives that after his alarm clock went off, he went downstairs to get a glass of water, and he was wearing only his underwear. And after he got the glass of water, Michael said he went into the living room, and in his own words, Michael stated to the police, I mean to the detectives, I picked up a hammer and was walking back to the kitchen, stopped and picked up the butcher knife, and walked upstairs. I went in my parents' room, and I stood there for four minutes. I don't know, like, I sort of snapped. I knew it was going to happen. I tried to stop it, but I couldn't. It was like I was shoved to the side. I couldn't do anything. I don't even remember what happened to the next, for the next two or three minutes. Sheesh. That's the words of a killer. Seriously, after beating his sleeping parents with the hammer and butchering their bodies with the chef's butcher knife that he had gotten out of the kitchen, Michael crept downstairs into his younger brother's room. In Michael's own words, he told the detectives, this was the words he used, I coaxed him out of bed and I told him to, uh, there there that's something that something weird was going on across the street, and basically it happened all over again. I went nuts, I made a try for his throat with the butcher knife, and we got to rolling on the ground and when I, when I came back, he was dead too what that was brutal? your brother can you imagine that? When the the detectives asked Michael why he would do such a thing, Michael offered up the excuse in his words, I felt like they were holding me down. I think ever since I've been a little kid, everything bad that's ever happened to me, instead of telling somebody about it or punching a wall or kicking something, I've always just set it aside and left it alone and forgotten about it. I guess it came to a boil. Really? (sighs) These murders completely shocked the small, quiet community of Easton. And a friend of the family released a statement to the press saying, They were just completely the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. He thought of his stepfather as more of a father than his real father. Mike didn't do this. It's not even a one in a million chance. Now, Michael's basically slaughtering his family was the first homicide Easton had experienced in six years. And the only triple homicide to date in Easton's history, which is saying a lot for Maryland. And it, like I said, it shocked the community. I i thinking, thinking about it now. I do remember this. I remember, um, Michael's parents were known to be like outstanding, popular, role model type of teachers who were the type of uh, teachers who would go above and beyond for their students, spending their own money for supplies and stuff like that. Sometimes the teachers would spend their time uh, tutoring and counseling their kids who had problems with their studies, who had problems with learning. If they needed extra help and stuff like that, they would lend a hand. You know, with not complaining. You can tell they weren't in in it for the money. It was just no explanation at all why this happened. Charged as an adult for this triple homicide of his family, despite being a 16-year-old, Michael, at first, through his attorneys, Michael claimed that, uh, like his father, well, his biological father anyway, he was like, I'm... Paranoid schizophrenic. I didn't know you can just self diagnose yourself with that. But anyway, he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Michael's defense attorney also said, of course, that Michael was severely mentally ill after their experts had diagnosed Michael with schizophrenia. But Maryland state doctors also examined Michael using their own tests and their own doctors, and although they they did determine that Michael only had potential precursors to the, you know, the disease precursors, which meaning traces of possibly having schizophrenia. Um, the Maryland state doctors at Clifton T Perkins were like, you know what? Negative. And they, that's where he got his test on the prosecution side. And they determined that, Michael wasn't insane, and that Michael was completely competent to stand trial for these grisly and brutal homicides of his parents and younger brother. When Michael discovered that he really couldn't convince nobody that he was mentally ill, all of a sudden, eventually, Michael withdrew his insanity plea and just pled guilty to second-degree murder of his family in in a plea deal. And the only motive that he could think of was, I don't know why. And I might have schizophrenia like my father had. That's why. Basically, in so many words, that was his only excuse. The detectives did find a diary that Michael kept on his computer where Michael had typed that he didn't like living in Easton anymore and that he was mad or upset because... His mother and his stepfather wouldn't let him listen to certain rap groups. But other than that, which is what every teenager would probably write about, there was never any real apparent motive as to why Michael would just decide to just wake up out the blue one day and just wipe out his whole family. um, And to just go off the deep end like that. And he had no real defense other than... Him possibly having schizophrenia. None of his excuses or reasoning flew with the judge and the judge sentenced Michael to three consecutive 30-year prison terms totaling 90 years. In 2005 Michael did try to get his sentence reduced and he applied for a sentence modification after he had been at uh, Clifton T Perkins for about nine years getting treatment most of michael's own family didn't even want him to be released because they were worried and scared about their own safety and probably thinking like the way i am like huh there's still no real explanation why you would do that how we know you wouldn't do it again so when i mean they were thinking like what would and also what would he do to them if he ever got out because his actions were so bizarre so unbelievable so out of character for him. They also thought that Michael could just wake up one day and decide to just, you know, do that to somebody else. Also, Michael thought that because he had been a model inmate and because he had had good behavior while he was in prison and because he had gotten his associates to, associates of arts degree from Anne Arundel uh, County Community College, like when he was locked up that that would help his chances of being released from prison but obviously it didn't and Michael's request for a modification of his 90-year sentence was denied. And eventually, Michael was transferred to a regular state prison to serve the remainder of his 90-year prison sentence and he was transferred out of Clifton T. Perkins which, you know, was a psychiatric hospital but to be transferred into a state prison? Ugh. Mm. So, I chose this case for obvious reasons. And also because I did want to bring freshness and newness to this case that I had forgotten about. Shouts out to everybody that sent me messages to, you know, profile this case. Um, I just still can't believe that there's no motive for this. I wonder what he think about in that cell, like... Do I believe he has schizophrenia? I mean, not really. Just because you feel like you might have traces of it. Um, I mean, although there's no explanation for why he seemed why he did what he did. I don't know. I mean, I still don't think, I'm not convinced that he has uh, schizophrenia. But I would be worried too if he got released and I was his family. You know, because like they said, you know, how do they know that he can't do that to them? and i say that to say this though even with his um uh you know insisting that he suffers from schizophrenia i do see him either being released one day or at the very least placed back into uh clifton t perkins and possibly being released the state of maryland is it's weird like that um i don't believe that he just zapped out because of playing video games either like I remember the media trying to place a big focus on him playing you know uh, Dungeons and Dragons and that's supposed to have been like some violent uh, video game and that's what led him into just in some type of trance all of a sudden wiping out his family I don't believe that had anything to do with it either he also didn't show any remorse in this case which is weird um he did this wasn't even like you know, an argument where his, where he just snapped one day, there were no signs of physical abuse or any type of abuse at all, verbal, emotional, sexual, anything from his parents just woke up one day and just curked out. I mean, what also, um, I also want to know why was the other brother kept alive? Um, that's going to take some further research on my, on my part. And I'm kind of curious about that. I should actually write him and ask him that, you know, because I did, some. I tried to find out, um, any articles I could find to figure out why the brother was kept alive. If somebody know that, maybe they can let me know, but I don't understand, I don't understand why the younger brother was kept alive. He also had, I believe it was a 12 year old brother that was, um, uh, kept alive. So, um, either way, um, this definitely made the list for uh, one of Maryland's most notorious parasite cases occurring in the state of Maryland. Moving right on into this episode's unsolved homicide. And just as I have done, I have done in every single episode that has been profiled on this podcast. Although a lot of attention and focus is placed on homicide cases where... The murder or case may have received a lot of attention, a lot of press, it might have been on Murder, Inc. or Fox 45, um, it got a lot of media coverage. This podcast also shines a light on the many homicide cases that we see in the state that do not receive a lot of attention. They don't receive a lot of press, if any attention at all. You might hear about it like one time and that's it. These type of murders are so common in the state that there's not a lot of time to focus on just one. I'm telling the truth about that. I mean, sometimes when a person gets murdered in this lovely state of Maryland, you don't hear nothing else about it other than the initial report. And the number of homicides that are unsolved in this state is completely like unbelievable. Almost 50%. It's really, it's obvious that homicide detectives cannot do it all by themselves. You know, it's, cases are not solved like what you might see on TV or, you know, Netflix, or the First 48, nothing like that. In the state of Maryland, it's not like that. You have to prove, um, you have to get convictions. And homicide detectives are often overworked, underpaid, understressed. And flat-out outnumbered and kept busy all the time but what happens to those cases where nobody is talking at all where there's absolutely no evidence where it seems like these cases should have been solved a long time ago what happens when there are no witnesses coming forward at all or the cases where it seems like because of the victims past Or the victim's lifestyle, where it just seems like those cases are being shoved under the rug. It just seems like detectives ain't really trying to investigate the case because, you know, this was drug-related or the victim, quote-unquote, had it coming. You know, what happens to those types of homicides or those type of cases? Did the killer really just get away with murder? It it just seems like literally nothing ever is done with these forgotten homicides. Not because nobody cares anymore, but simply because the public just forgot all about it. Because we've been bombarded or reintroduced by new homicides. It's a rotating cycle. It's like we have become almost immune to homicides in this state. Well... One of the main purposes or focuses for this podcast is that, you know, although I do talk about cases where the murder did receive a lot of attention and notoriety, on the flip side, a huge focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the amount of attention that they deserve. And with that being said, this episode's Unsolved Homicide... Is the cutting death of 29 year old? I'm sorry, the cutting murder of 29 year old Linda May Lester. Now, 29 year old Linda May Lester worked in Towson as a civilian police 9-1 uh, dispatcher and a 911 operator. And on October the 11th, 1994, Around 10.45 p.m., she left work to pick up her two-year-old daughter from her ex-husband home in the 8,000 block of Church Lane in Randallstown. The couple had been separated ever since January 24, 1994, and Linda's friends and family later told reporters for the Baltimore Sun that the marriage had ended on bad terms after years of arguments and arguments. Fights and threats from her husband if she ever left him when Linda's ex-husband told Linda's family that she had never showed up to pick up her daughter the next day on October the twelfth nineteen ninety four Linda's sister reported her missing to the police after she got a call after she had gotten a call from Linda's co-workers telling her that Linda never showed up for work that day and plus they were supposed to hook up but she never did so the next day after she reported her missing to the police the next day after that linda's 1985 gray mercury cougar was found by a maintenance worker a little before 6 p.m behind the ramada inn which used to be the ramada inn in the 1700 block of belmont avenue in woodlawn the car had been backed into a parking space, and when the police examined the car further, they found that the car was stained with Linda's blood. And a spokesperson for the Baltimore County um, Police Department released a statement saying there was some blood on the trunk lid and some on the rear bumper, and a slight amount on the driver's side door, leading us to believe There is foul play and possibly a homicide here. And a family member released a statement to the press saying in their words, We're all upset but still hoping and praying for the best. Now that her car has been found, we're pretty sure there is foul play. She would never, never, never disappear like that. Three days uh, later, after Linda's car was found, On October the 17th, 1994, a utility worker was working on the side of the road on Interstate 70 at the Patapsco River Bridge south of the Howard County line in Woodlawn when he saw what he he thought was a mannequin somebody dumped on the road. But it turned out it was the body of 29-year-old Linda Mae Lester. Wearing only a pair of black and white checkered pants, Linda had been severely beaten and her throat was cut. Linda's murder completely devastated her family, especially her father, and her father released a statement saying she was a loving, intelligent person who was well-liked and always helping other people. Throughout the years... Linda's friends and family, especially her father, have written countless, countless, numerous, numerous letters to detectives, politicians, county officials, anybody who would listen, uh, or if anything, you know, could be done to reopen her case, to solve his daughter's murder case, but nothing was ever done. And because Linda's estranged husband at the time was battling Linda um, in a heated divorce at the time um, that Linda was murdered, Linda's family honestly believes that although Linda's husband had been completely cleared as a suspect, I must, I must continue, I must say that, on make that clear, Linda's ex-husband has been completely and 100% cleared as a suspect. Um, Although he has been completely cleared as a suspect, they still believe that he had something to do with uh, Linda's murder, no matter when or how he was cleared as a suspect. But as of right now, today, nobody, no one has ever been charged or convicted in this 29-year-old unsolved homicide. And obviously... Baltimore County Cold Case Detectives need your help. Now, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this. I shouldn't, but I'm going to say this and I'm going to go there. Now, if... (laughs) Wow. This one... There are things that you can do if you have a feeling about certain things. Now, the family, if you're listening to this, just send me a message. But as of, I'm going to continue with this podcast. As of right now, today, nobody has ever been charged or convicted in this 29-year-old unsolved homicide. And Baltimore County cold case detectives, they need to help. So if you have any information at all, in this 29-year-old homicide and you want to bring closure to this family, please, please call Baltimore County Detectives at 410-887-3943 or you can reach them at 410 307 You can also call Metro Crime Stoppers at one 7 lockup Or you can text TIPS to uh, CRIMES which is C-R-I-M-E-S or on your numeric keypad it's 274-637. Once again, those numbers are Baltimore County Detectives at 410-887-3943 or 410-307-2020, which are the cold case detectives. Or you can call Metro Crime Stoppers at one eight six six seven 7 lockup Or you can text any tips to CRIMES, which is C-R-I-M-E-S, or on your numeric keypad. The numbers are 274 637 There is a cash reward of $2,000 for any information leading to an arrest or conviction for this unsolved homicide, and I am 1,000% positive somebody knows something about this one. This should have been solved a long time ago. Let's bring closure for this family, especially for the holiday season comes, you know, and get this one solved. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast via Spotify for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. And for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored version of why I decided to start a true crime podcast. A lot of people think that this is just some fly-by-night thing. I just woke up one day out of the blue and was just like, okay, guess what, I'm going to start a podcast, but nope. That is not even half of the truth. There is a real therapeutic message to this whole true crime world of gore and mayhem and all this other stuff that I live in. And if you click on the episode entitled, Why I Do What I Do and subscribe, you'll understand more about why I'm so weird, why I'm so crazy, why I'm so fascinated by this weird world. I also want my listeners to know that very, very soon... The documentary version, the film version of this podcast, episodes uh, number one, which was focused, which was focused on um, accused child murderers Adon Canella and Paula Carpio Espinoza, will be released very, very, very soon. Very soon, within the next couple of weeks. And when the documentary, which was produced by uh, Savage Life Productions, and filmed on location in Baltimore city will be available for download. I will definitely keep you guys posted as to where you can download it. And while you're at it, stop on over to the new website, Maryland's most notorious murders.com. And Maryland is spelled MDS most notorious murders.com. Where you can access all episodes of this podcast and check out the different seasons that, uh, I have focused on like uh, teen killers, relationship killers, mental illness murders. It's it's so many, you got to divide them into categories. I'm not even, I I kid you not. You can also find links to all of um, my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled uh, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990 through 2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and my local bestsellers. Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore and um, Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. As I stated before, um, you can also check me out on season one of Payback, which airs for the TV One Network. You can also check me out on the Oxygen Network for Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial killer, Josephine Gray, or you can check me out on TV One's Justice by Any Means, TV One's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the North Carolina child murderer, uh, Peter Moses. Or you can find me hosting uh, Killer Kids for the Element Network, where I profiled teen killers, uh, Sarah satroni and Jason DeLong, who were also featured on last uh, featured on I think it was episode four of episode four or five of this season. Um, once the season one documentary is avail- available for download, you'll also be able to find uh, the links here at Maryland's Most Notorious Murders.com. Please be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome, another high profile, another notorious homicide occurring in the state of Maryland will be profiled. It will be examined and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. This has been a Savage Life production.